I don't know about you, but I'm getting frustrated with politics in this country. Now, don't get me wrong. I know there are some very dedicated men and women of all different parties serving their constituencies up and down the land. But I'm really tired of the way politics on the whole is conducted in the UK. It's so short term in thinking, so personality driven, so antagonistic. And I don't think this is just me. I think a whole generation of younger people are being put off politics by the recent scandals that we have had. I sat down to research this sermon on the day Parliament debated calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. It turned out to be a casing point. What could be more important than that issue? But what did our politicians do? Well, two-thirds of the House walked out in the attempt to score political points against one another. Now, again, I don't want you to get me wrong. I think democracy is hugely important. We should all get informed and all go out and vote. And I also think it's a disgrace that so many politicians are now living in fear of threats and violence that can never be justified. But I've definitely got to the point where I no longer put much hope in politicians at all, regardless of which party they come from. Yes, they will try their best, but ultimately they're not going to solve the big problems of the world. They are just as frail and fallible as we all are. In the face of climate change and aggressive superpowers and worldwide pandemics and crime and injustice, the only hope I really have is in something new. I found myself feeling more desperate for the return of Jesus than ever before. All of my hope is in God's kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. Now, why do I begin this sermon in such a way? Well, it's because this passage is full of people playing political games. The writer of Ecclesiastes said that there is nothing new under the sun. And boy, was he right. Everything we see in politics today is also found here in John 18. Let's take the differing political figures one at a time. The first group that we meet are the Jewish leaders. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. The Jewish leaders have been looking for a way to get rid of Jesus for months now. Several previous attempts to arrest him have failed. Many rocks that have been thrown have missed their target. They now have Jesus in chains. But in the first half of this chapter, they have still failed to make any of the charges stick. Annas and Caiaphas could not get Jesus to say anything that would incriminate himself. They might have deemed Jesus to be a threat to their own power and position and prestige, but there has been very little that they could legally do about it. 
But as more and more people have gone over to Jesus, the Jewish leaders have got more and more desperate to eradicate him. And now we see the lengths they're prepared to go to in order to achieve that end. Just look at how many rules and principles they bend in this passage. First, there are the rules about ceremonial purity. The Jews could not enter a Gentile home for it would make them unclean. But does that put them off from going to the palace of Pilate, the Roman governor? Not at all. They decide to shout at him from outside as if that was perfectly acceptable. And why did they go to all this bother? Well, it's because they wanted to be clean to celebrate Passover. Passover is the great festival of the Jews that celebrated the liberation from Egypt in the Exodus. What better way to celebrate freedom than to spend all morning pestering for an innocent man to be incarcerated? It's so hypocritical, isn't it? So here they were at Pilate's palace. Now, every single one of those Jewish leaders detested the Romans. They couldn't stand them. They wanted them out of their country as soon as possible. Yet they were quite prepared to go cap in hand to the Romans to get what they wanted. They were never above a little political expediency. And what was it that the Romans could grant them that they could not do themselves? It was an execution. They bent all of their own rules just to see a man killed. A man who had never hurt anyone. Indeed, he'd only healed them, but was taking some of the attention that they craved for themselves. And then you get to the downright lie. These Jewish leaders knew that the Romans would not act unless their charges against Jesus were serious. So what rumour do they let circulate to Pilate? They allow him to think that Jesus was their king. Their king who was a threat to Caesar. Did these Jewish leaders really think that? No, not at all. They didn't think Jesus was a king in any shape or form. In chapter 19, verse 7, we see the one charge that they have against him, and it was blasphemy. But they knew that the Romans would not care about that whatsoever, so they raised the stakes, knowing exactly what they were doing as they do it. Can you see, these are all political games. All examples of cynical manoeuvring to achieve their own selfish ambitions. This is all about power and it's utterly corrupt. Now let's turn our attention to Pilate himself. We know quite a lot about Pilate, both from the Bible and historical sources from the time. Pilate is what you would call a career politician. He may have started as a soldier, but his whole life has been lived trying to climb up the ranks. Pilate didn't come from the Middle East, not at all. He had taken this post a long way from home because he thought it would be helpful for him to rise up the ladder. If he could do a job in notorious Israel, he would be guaranteed a senior posting and better pay in the future. History tells us that Pilate was a brutal ruler. His main job was to keep the Jews quiet so that grain could pass unhindered on its journey from Egypt to Rome. And to do this, history tells us that he committed many awful atrocities against the Jews. He sought to control them harshly, all the time with an eye on the pleasure of his masters back home. And in this reading, you get several glimpses of Pilate's true character. 
Initially, when the Jews arrive at his home, he has absolutely no interest in them. He despises them. He doesn't care for their moaning. He gives them short shrift. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, he says. But then, when he discovers that this is a capital case, that the death penalty is being demanded, possibly involving a king, he suddenly gets worried. Why? Because as Roman governor, he will be held responsible for it. If Jesus causes trouble and news gets back to Rome, he would be in for the chop. And it's only when he starts to feel personally threatened that he starts to interrogate Jesus. After only a very short time in Jesus' presence, Pilate realises that Jesus is no political threat at all. Pilate is greatly relieved by this and then quickly switches back to his favourite pastime, which is winding up the Jews. In verse 39, as he tries to hand Jesus back to them, he calls him the one thing that really is going to wind them up. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews to you? Pilate knows exactly what he's doing. He's up to all sorts of political games, and all of them are designed to bring attention and plaudits to himself. Now, clearly, the Jewish leaders and Pilate are the key political players in this story, but there's actually one more, and he's worthy of a brief mention as well. It's so ironic that when Pilate decides that Jesus was no political threat, he ends up releasing in his place a man who definitely was. We sometimes think of Barabbas as a thief, but that isn't correct. The Greek word used to describe him is lestes, and that is someone much more than just a robber. This is someone who is violent. Someone who fought in uprisings. We today would use the word freedom fighter or terrorist. Barabbas was someone who dedicated his whole life to the violent overthrow of Rome. We're all sick of people who use violence to get their desires, aren't we? We've seen the damage that Putin does and Hamas does and the suicide bombers of Islamic State. This is another form of utterly corrupt politics that we want to see eradicated from the earth. How telling then that the Jewish leaders rabidly chant for Barabbas' release in order to see that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is executed instead. I guess the more that we think of the behaviour of the Jewish leaders and the Roman governor and the terrorist Barabbas, the more one thing becomes clear. Jesus came to our world. He came to our world, didn't he? Exactly as we know it. Jesus encountered all sorts of moral bankruptcy. He came face to face with injustice and wickedness and cynical human behaviour. He knew what it was to stand up against selfish self-importance. He saw firsthand the damage that sin does to people and the community. There is no doubt when you read John 18 that Jesus came to our world. He walked our streets, breathed our air. But of course, the good news is, is that he came to save us from all this. He came to bring something totally new. 
Because of the spurious rumours the Jewish leaders were spreading in order to get Jesus done away with, Pilate's line of questioning in this passage is all about kingship. In verse 33, Pilate summons Jesus and asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And as was often the case, Jesus replied to that with a question of his own. Is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Now, when you think about it, that is actually a very important question. Is Jesus a king like Pilate thinks of a king? Is he a king leading an army that is a threat to Rome? Is he a king like Caesar? If that's Pilate's idea, Jesus was definitely not that king. But is Jesus a king like the Jews think of a king? Was Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the king promised to Israel in prophecies of centuries past? Was Jesus that unique, special king? Yes, absolutely he was. That is exactly who he was and who he is today. So can you see whether Jesus is king or not very much depends on who is asking and what they think a king is. Notice that nowhere in this passage does Jesus deny being the king. In fact, from this moment on, he goes on to speak about the kingdom that he is king of and the way that it works. So now I want to take us back to where we began and ask a crucial question. How is the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus is king of, different to the kingdoms of this world? What are the politics of God's kingdom and how are they different to the politics of Israel and the politics that we find in the UK today? Well, this passage gives us three important clues. First of all, in verse 36, Jesus says this. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Or in other words, it's not from this world. It is a heavenly kingdom, a divine kingdom. And for Jesus, one of the most important things that that means is that this is a kingdom that will not use the tactics of violence. It is a kingdom of peace. And of course, this is why Jesus so quickly rebuked Peter when he tried to fight back against Jesus' arrest with a sword. Violence in that moment was completely incompatible with who Jesus was and what he had come to achieve. God's kingdom is not a kingdom marred by sin in any way. It is not a kingdom of cynical political manoeuvring, bullying aggression or hidden selfish intentions. It is not a kingdom of this world. But God's kingdom is the kingdom for this world. Jesus came that first time to set it going through his death and resurrection. And one day he'll return to earth to fulfill it. Jesus is bringing something new to us, something so much better. 
One day heaven will come to earth and God's kingdom of peace will reign over all and evil and sin will be no more. What a glorious thought. The great hope of us all. The second hint we get about God's kingdom in this passage is that it's a kingdom of truth. Pilate responds to Jesus' statement in verse 37. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. We have seen numerous times now how this is such an important theme in John's gospel. Jesus came to earth to reveal God's truth to the world. In fact, he is the truth. Truth is what we see when we see God. And when we see Jesus, we see God. Jesus is true in character. All of his words are true. Everything about him is genuinely truthful and honest. John has described Jesus as the light of the world. In him, there is no darkness at all. No hidden motives like we find in those who are playing political games. The Bible tells us that prior to Jesus, the truth was not in this world. Every human being was the same. We were selfish and tried to twist everything to our own agenda. Truth came from out of this world in Jesus. But the promise is that now it is here. One day, truth will be all there is. When the kingdom of God comes in full, there will never be a lie told ever again. And of course, Pilate scoffs at this news. What is truth? He retorts. Pilate had heard so many people claiming to have the truth. So many, in fact, that Pilate and those like him had come up with their own means of deciding what was true or not. Truth was found at the end of a sword when someone had the power to back it up. Jesus didn't have a sword and Pilate wasn't scared of him. And so he would waste no more time trying to investigate Jesus for himself. I really want us to hold on to this today. Jesus is the truth. He is everything that cynical human politics is not. In verse 32, it says that everything taking place here was to fulfill the kind of death that Jesus had always said he would have. If you remember right back in John chapter 3, Jesus had said he would be lifted up. Lifted up just like Moses held up that bronze snake in the wilderness. And everyone who looked onto him and believed would have eternal life. Jesus will soon be lifted up on the cross. All of his words coming exactly true. Everything Jesus said was truth. Everything he did was truth. He is the truth. And when his kingdom comes, truth will reign. And the truth will set us free. We will live in fear of violence or hidden motives no more. So God's kingdom is the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of peace and the kingdom of truth. There's one final hint in this passage as to the politics of Jesus. 
Ultimately, God's kingdom is a kingdom of grace. A kingdom of undeserved blessing for other people. We know this because Jesus, the king of this kingdom, didn't come to serve himself, as many modern politicians do with their bogus expense claims. He came to serve others. And those final verses with Barabbas become this incredible picture of all that Jesus will achieve. Jesus, who is perfectly innocent, will die so the criminal can go free. This was the truth. Jesus was dying for Barabbas. He was dying for Israel. He was dying for the whole world. He was dying for sinners like you and me. Jesus was going to the cross for us so that we might take our place in his kingdom, a kingdom of love and grace for eternity. At the beginning of this passage, John stressed how all this took place while the Passover festival was going on. At the very moment that Jesus was crucified, the lambs were being killed too. It is a powerful sign that Jesus came to set us free. To set us free from our sin. And to set the whole world free from the sinful political systems that we humans have created. This really is the best of news. So tonight we have considered the murky and corrupt politics of the land that Jesus came into. The politics that in many respects we still see in the world today. The politics that the Father allowed to lead Jesus to his death. And we've also seen how Jesus is the king who came to bring a whole new political reality to bear. A heavenly kingdom run on very different values The valleys of peace and truth and grace. How then are we to respond to all of this? Well, of course, if we've not done so already, we must turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. We need a saviour. Currently, our sin is leading us to death. We need to be forgiven. We need to be set free, just like Barabbas was. But if we've already done that, We need now to allow our lives to be filled with hope. Don't drown in the frustrations that I began this sermon by expressing. Instead, set your eyes on the world to come. The kingdom that is now, but not yet. Yes, please pray for our politicians. But let us all put our hope in Jesus and his return. We really can live knowing that the future isn't bleak but so much better than we could ever dream or imagine. And finally, we are to do what we can to demonstrate God's kingdom day by day. We know this kingdom is not of this world, but many people around us still look for it there. By living a peaceful, truthful, gracious life, we can begin to point them up and out from this world to Jesus, the heavenly King that we all need.